Judges. We'll be reading Judges 12, 8 through all of chapter 13. So 12, 8 through all of chapter 13. Let us pray to our God, asking for his help to understand this text. God of all grace, we come again to you humbly asking for the divine assistance that we require if we are to understand aright and apply rightly this text. And so that is why we are praying. In Christ's name, amen. Judges 12, 8 through 13, 25. Hear now the inspired, authoritative word of God. After him, Ibsen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdin, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdin, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to, to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. 
And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared to appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahananendun between Zorah and Eshtaol. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may God add the reading, add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I don't know what kinds of videos or entertainment you guys like to watch, but I'm assuming it's cat videos. At least that's part of some of your likes. But another kind of entertainment, another kind of video is the classic cleaning video. You've seen those houses on hoarders, so much stuff in the house, so much trash that's piled Three weeks old garbage that's covering the floor. Food sauce and stains that are on the wall. The sink just overflowing with dishes. The level of dirtiness that'll scare a grown man. You see the before of the house. You see the before of the the living room, the, the garage, the kitchen, whatever it is, and your mouth just drops to the floor. The whole house is affected inside and out, and you ask the question, who will begin to clean up this mess. It surely seems insurmountable, a weighty task. Well, it takes a special person, doesn't it? A courageous person to undertake such Mount Everest of a mess. And she'll need some cleaning supplies, no doubt the, the pink stuff, all the equipment, and a lot of time, and a ton of trash bags to get through the mess. And sometimes we feel that way about the sin in our hearts, about the trials in our lives, or some of the relational conflicts that keep us up at night. We ask, when will we stop giving in to that sin? We ask, when one trial comes, why another? Why, when it rains, does it pour? We ask, has this relationship gotten to its breaking point? Is it done for? Is there really any hope left? And all of these serious concerns call for someone uniquely qualified to begin to unravel the mess. The people of God in today's text were essentially in the same boat as, as we are today. They had piled on one sin upon another. Their suffering grew and grew the hands of the Philistines. Their relationships with one another demanded someone uniquely set apart to begin to deliver them from it all. The point we see in this text is that a unique judge is specially set apart to save God's people from the evils of sin and oppression. Well, through Judges 9, 10, and 11, I don't mean the chapters, 
I mean, the number of judges, 9, 10, and 11, we see death, death, death. We come to the lesser-known judges, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon, whose names we soon forget as we hear them. The final minor men. Each of these three minor judges served longer than Jephthah did. And you'll recall he served only six years. But what distinguishes Jephthah from these men, in fact, what distinguishes the major judges from the minor judges, is that the major judges did more than judge or govern. They delivered. They were used mightily by God to rescue them from some oppressor's hands. They all had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. But the major judges in the book of Judges were used for that deliverance ministry. Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon were all used by God to stem the tidal waves of sin and suffering, to suppress the sinfulness of Israel. And nevertheless, each man judged Israel with various levels of success, with various levels of prosperity, faithfulness to God. We come to Ibsen. He's given three verses. He was from Bethlehem of Zebulun, not to be confused with the Bethlehem of Judah. He served seven years, so one year longer than did Jephthah. And we see that he had a lot of kids. As we've seen before, this means he was likely a polygamist. He had 30 sons, 30 daughters. Interestingly, the text says that he gave out his daughters and he brought in 30 daughters-in-law from outside his own tribe. The man, in order to have that many kids, in order to have that kind of influence, was a man of considerable reputation. Though we know know very little of the man. And his his offspring far exceeded Jephthah's one. Then there's Elon. Elon judged near Ibsen, but for 10 years. So four years longer than did Jephthah. He was in Zebulun. He judged there. He died there. He was buried there. He had no kids. And we have Abdon. He's like Ibsen, unlike Elon. Abdon, whose name means servant, served the Lord, served the people of God for eight years. Again, two years longer than did Jephthah, probably southwest of Shechem. And we were told that Abdon had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, totaling 70 offspring. A perfect number, a quiver quite full. And all these Abdonian arrows, if you will, must have a donkey. Seventy donkeys. Very similar to the other minor judge, whose name we probably forgot, Jair back in Judges 10. And eventually, Abdon dies and is buried in the hill country of the pagan Amalekites. And when we include Jephthah from verse 7, what we have are four deaths in eight verses. There's a lot of death in the book of Judges, but you don't get in so concentrated a passage so many deaths. What do we conclude about this? But that we are meant to recall that weighty refrain all the way back in Judges 5. And he died. And he died. And he died. Think of Adam, who lived 930 years, and he died. Seth, who lived 912 years, and he died. Enosh, who lived 905 years, and he died. 
Or even Methuselah, who lived 969 years, and then he died. And there are more in that text, whose years were given, but then it says, and he died. With these minor judges, there is a mixture of infidelity, prosperity, but one notable point is this, that despite all of their prestige, despite all of their prosperity, they all died. You read the book of Judges, and you see a lot of death. We are reminded that death comes to all, even these minor judges. It doesn't matter if you're a major judge or a minor judge, if you're a judge, if you're not a judge, you die. All of the people in this book are dead, though some are alive with Christ Jesus in heaven. But this book recalls this hard truth to us over and over. And we do well to reflect upon that. As Ecclesiastes says, we do well to to reflect on, to, to go into the house of mourning. We need to be reminded regularly of death. Of our own one day, our own death, impending death. It will come to all. So however faithful or unfaithful these judges were, they all died. And their destination is the same as ours. We will all die. And the sad reality for a lot of these Israelites is that the death of these judges never delivered the people from their own hell-bound estate. These judges never rescued them from their greatest need, to be rescued from the wrath of God forever. And the sad reality is that these Israelites, so many of them, would take the death of these judges, whether they were major judges or minor judges, they would take the death of these judges and use that time as license to go on sinning. It's a hard truth. I imagine not many people like to talk about death. Seems like in America we are just finding every opportunity to not even think about death. Death comes to all. We see it page after page in the scripture. This is what will happen because we live in a fallen world, because we came from the first Adam who brought death into the world, who brought sin in the world, who brought suffering in the world. And the final judge in this book, Samson, will be born into a time of sinfulness. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil on the side of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Does not your heart sink when you read that verse? And the people of Israel again did what was evil. Here we come to the last judge. And we're saying... Again? Really? Israel, what is your problem? It's the same problem that we have. We are foolish then to judge them for not pointing the finger at ourselves as well. 
too often. This is us, isn't it? We, again, do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what Samson will be born into. And death and sinfulness go hand in hand, don't they? So Paul says, the wages of sin is death. That's what our sin deserves. You put in 40 hours a week, and you get death. All of our works are abominable in the sight of God unless they are done in Christ. And we offer nothing but death. The wages of sin is death. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, showboating their sin. This has been the history of Israel's devolution. As this book carries on, you will see more and more devolution. Things are not getting better and better as you read the book of Judges. They get worse. The dog returns to its vomit, as Peter says. The sow returns to her mud. The vomit was repulsive for a time, but then the dog returns to it. The the mud was unclean for a time, and then the sow returns to it. And because of Israel's wanton, unrepentant sinfulness, the Lord gives them over to the Philistines. As the Lord had sent the Ammonites to Israel in Jephthah's day, now the Philistines, those regular thorns in Israel's side, are used to poke and to unsettle Israel that has been so comfortable in his sin. It's the Lord's way of saying, wake up, Israel. You don't get to go on sinning so that grace may abound. We're told in Judges 15, verse 20, that Samson judges Israel for 20 years. And these years coincided with the second half of the 40-year Philistine oppression. Samson rules, he governs, he judges between two pivotal battles. And you can read about these in 1 Samuel 4 and 7. The first battle is the battle of Aphek, in which Israel was defeated and lost that blessed Ark of the Covenant. And the second battle was the battle of Mizpah in which Samuel conquered the Philistines and put an end to that oppression. Samson then ministers to Israel during the ministry of Eli. He judged in the west as Jephthah was active in the east, and he continued to serve Israel until Samuel rose to lead the people of God. This is the situation in which Samson will soon find himself. It was not the worst of times, but no one would dare say that it was the best of times in the history of redemption of God's people. Death and sin do not bode well in the abode of God. And as Samson will emerge on this scene of darkness, he anticipates for us even the sun's emergence, even the sun's entrance into the world. You recall that the Israelites in the days before Jesus' birth had been in prophetic darkness for 400 years that time between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years, the intertestamental period, darkness. There would be no word from the Lord for four centuries. And why would there be no word from the Lord? Because there had been for centuries words from the Lord, one prophet after another, 
hear now the word of the Lord. And they say, we hear it, but we don't like it. Get out of here. We'll kill you. Over and over and over. And the Lord says, okay, I will take that word from you for 400 years. What a blessing John the Baptist was to Israel when he came on the scene. But a greater blessing, of course, was the one whom John the Baptist foretold, whose ways he pronounced. And the, and the people of God in, in Jesus' day had been under Roman rule for quite some time. Of course, they were itching to get out of Roman rule. Worshippers remained, that's true, but, but few were they. The people of God were oppressed by the heavy yoke of, of Pharisaic legalism, of man-made traditions. And so what we have in the first century is death. What you have is sinfulness. What you have is oppression. It was into that world that the Son of God burst as he left Mary's womb. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the sinful world can no longer suppress its sin, the Son came. When the Son of God from heaven could no longer contain the saving grace that he would carry out on earth, he came. And he made us sons and daughters God. But before our adoption, before by grace we have received that, that privilege of being counted children of God, before that, what did the son see when he walked into the house that was our heart? What did he see but death? What did he see but darkness? What did he see but sinfulness? Hostility, enmity, suffering. What he saw was the whole spectrum of that estate of sin and misery that our confession speaks of. That was what our first Adam brought us into. Our lot was sin, suffering, pain, hating God and hating one another. As Paul walked Athens and was righteously indignant at the idols of the land, Christ walks the land in our hearts, so to speak, and he sees these shadowy valleys of our suffering. He marvels at the peaks that our pride has taken us to, and he has journeyed the unrighteous paths that our feet have trodden. And what did you see? But all the idols that our hearts were manufacturing. And what is his response? What could it, what could it be but righteous indignation? How could the Holy One of Israel not be righteously angry at all of the idols that he saw, of all the sin that he saw, of all the darkness that he saw? No doubt, he says, these idols will not do. These idols will not suffice. These idols will not be able to save them. And as he keeps walking, he blends his perfect righteousness with perfect compassion. He didn't say to the Father when he got on the earth, I did not sign up for this, Dad, this 
Do you see the do you see how wicked these people are? Get me out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. What does he do? Because death comes to all. The sun comes to all. The sun comes to all tribes and tongues, nations, peoples. And he says, that water you're drinking, that's polluted water. Don't drink that polluted water. I instead have living water. Drink that. He looks at the bread that you're eating and he says, that's stale bread, worm-infested bread. Don't eat that bread. Instead, eat me, John 6. I am the bread of life. What does the son do? He rolls up his sleeves and he stretches out his arms. He says, believe on me. You cannot save yourself. Your idols cannot save you. But I can. Trust in me and me alone. Returning to the Samson story, we see in verse 3, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Samson's is the only birth story in the book of Judges. That is to say, no other judge in this book has, as one commentator calls it, a nativity story thus highlighting the uniqueness of Samson. The angel of the Lord appears to an unnamed woman, the wife of Manoah. We'll just call her Mrs. Manoah. So Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, and I commend Judges 13 to you again this week, read it and see how godly these parents are, how much faith they had in the Lord. It's such an early time in redemptive history. They're godly parents, and this is quite the contrast the lives of previous judges. And as our study has already shown, and as this chapter is showing, the angel of the Lord here is actually the Son of God. It is the second person of the Trinity. And so he appears to the woman, and he tells her something that she is all too familiar with. You are barren. You cannot have a child. Now, if she was not the respectful, godly woman that she was, she might have been tempted to respond with, yeah, no duh. You don't need to tell me that I can't have any kids. I deal with that every single day. Don't toy with my heart. You might think she would have a bit of an attitude that Naomi has had as we've been studying Ruth in the evening. She doesn't do that. Her faith is commendable throughout this, throughout this chapter. But why mention barrenness? Because the mention of, of her barrenness is pregnant with a prophecy. Her barrenness is meant to give birth to a message. You shall conceive. You shall bear a son. What a joyful announcement of life from a hitherto dead womb. There will be life in this womb? I'm going to have a child? He's going to do great things? Will he do great things? Surely Mrs. Manoah's heart was thrilled by this angelic, even divine prophecy. As much as this new life will give new life to her heart, this life and joy would not be contained 
at Manoah Manor. The son born to this family will be especially set apart for service. So verse 12 is key in this text. Manoah said, Now when your words come true, the faith that only God can give a man like this, and now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? So we have two questions. What is the manner of life of this child and what will be his mission? How will his life be? And why is he going to be here? What is he going to be sent to do? To answer the first question, we see that his life will be the life of a Nazarite. He will take a Nazarite vow. The angel of the Lord will actually impose this Nazarite vow. It will be on him from womb to the tomb, from life to death. This word not seer means separated, and this vow refers to a special separation, which we read in number six. The one who takes this vow of separation was separate from three things, wine or strong drink, the razor, couldn't have a haircut, and then death. He had to avoid death. There would be no wine until the work is accomplished. There would be no haircut until the sacrifice is made. And the grave and the wine was a symbol of God's Sabbath blessing, of his rest, of joy in God's presence. And this was to be passed over by the Nazarite until his vow was completed, until his work was done. And normally, the Nazarite vow is a limited vow for a short period of time, maybe a couple weeks, month. But in Samson's case, it is a lifetime vow from birth. And God doesn't do what I did with Jonathan and Samuel, bring them up here and say, now here are the vows. Do you ascend to them? Before the congregation, God doesn't do that to Samson. From the very beginning, God imposes this vow. He says, you will be set apart. I'm choosing you for a special mission. And of course, he chooses Samson not because of anything Samson had done. He was in the womb because of what God will do through Samson, a very weak individual, despite his physical strength. Samson will be divinely, specially set apart for a life and death ministry to God. In the book of Judges, chapters 13 through 16, give us only a small portion of Samson's life, of his 20-year judgeship. All we have are his birth, the summer before he became judge, and then his death. Surely you would like to know what he did. Because, the book, because of the book of Hebrews talks about Samson, he, he was a, a man of faith. And he did commendable things uh, whenever he leaned upon the Lord. But his life is riddled with weakness. It's riddled with sin. But surely he is still one for whom we can give thanks to God because of God's care for him and love for him and ministry in and through Samson. And because of the devolution of Israel, the Lord provides one final judge to begin to deliver them. And that's the answer to the second question. What will be his mission? His mission will be to deliver, to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And you see even just slightly how Samson's birth story typifies the son's birth story. Yes, there are differences between the two. Jesus' mother 
was not barren, per se. But she had not known a man. She was a virgin. And notice the words that an angel of the Lord gives to Joseph in Matthew 1. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Samson or Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Very similar to what the angel of the Lord gave to Manoah. And as death entered the world through sin, life enters the world through the Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. This is not a special Nazarite law that the Son was to obey just this particular law, this particular vow. No, no, no. The Son of God subjected his life to the fullness of God's perfect law. He would be under all of the law of God so that he would fulfill every last bit of the law of God, so that we, who break the law of God time and again, would find salvation in the one who obeyed the law of God from start to finish. He was set apart by the Father from the very beginning. He was specially devoted. And even at the end of Jesus' earthly life, he speaks words of consecration He says in John 17, for their sake, that is, for our sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart as high priest. I set myself as Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I set myself apart for devotion to the Father, to you, God, and for their salvation. And before the Christ took upon the cross, Before he takes that cross upon his shoulders, he has a final meal with his friends. In Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Though he wasn't a Nazarite, even here, Christ swears off wine for a time. And when do we drink this wine? Well, every Lord's Day. This is not a a fictitious meal that we're going to take in a little bit. We're not doing this just to remember things. We are actually eating and drinking with the Lord. And even the Lord's table is a taste, a foretaste of that full communion that we will one day have. Jesus wasn't a Nazarite, though he was a Nazarene. He didn't let his hair grow out like a Nazarite would have to. But he did let that crown of thorns upon that, his glorious head. He didn't avoid death like a Nazarite was supposed to. Instead, he looked death squarely in its ugly face. And he said, I will conquer you with my death, my resurrection. Surely before the Son has, has come to bring us home, he has, he has given us wonders to behold. Returning again briefly to the Samson story, there are wonders to behold in the angel of the Lord's gracious interaction here with Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, his faithful servants. Verses 15 through 20 are a snapshot of the incarnational ministry of this very angel of the Lord, the one who came to Manoah and his wife. And what do they do? They watch his wonderful works. Verses 19 and 20. So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered on the rock to the Lord 
to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord would not eat with them, but he would accept a sacrifice from them. And so they give the sacrifice, and what do they do? They watch the one who does wonders. In awe of the angel of the Lord, this couple stood amazed, watching the pre-incarnate Son of God. Surely this was a sight to behold, as all other spectacles would fade in the background. Concerns of barrenness fail to threaten or worry the heart that has been enraptured by the Almighty. When we consider our own lives, there are many trials. Our worries and our woeful sins all pass from our view because our sins have been passed from divine sight. They are removed as far as east is from the west. And with eyes of faith, we behold the one who works wonders from start to finish. And what can a heart struck by his wonders do but worship his wonderful name? Manoah asks him, what is your name? We want to honor your name. And the angel of the Lord says, why ask me my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. It is the name that is the most wonderful name. It is the name above all names. This is the name of the child to be born. This is the name of the son to be given. This is the name of the one upon whose shoulders will be the government and increase of the earth. This is the name that shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the name that as a youth, people would see his wisdom and authority and he would cause the elite to marvel. This is the one at the sound of whose name made the wind and the seas obey him. This is the one whose name dries up blood. This is the name who terrifies demons. This is the name that raises children, people from the dead. This is the name that when used, turns loaves and fish to many, and he feeds thousands. This is the name that walks on water. It's the name above all names. This is the name in which we will be raised from the dead into newness of life. This is the name who sends down the Spirit into our hearts because he loves us. His is the name, the only name under heaven given among men by which man must be saved. The name of the only mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What a name. What a wonderful name. There's no, glorious, there's no more glorious name than this name. There's no better name than this name. There's no one who works more wonders than this one. And what can a heart pierced by the awesome wonder of Christ do but rest in this sacrifice? Manoah and his wife offer their sacrifices, but they soon see their unworthiness. At least Manoah does. Surely he has in mind Exodus thirty-three twenty: You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. They seem certain in their faith. We shall surely die. We have seen God. And as the angel of the Lord did with Gideon back in Judges 6, so now he ascends 
in the flame. And the faith of Manoah's wife is commendable. Verse 23, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. When we are struck by our sin, when we are awestruck by the holiness of God, we rightly wonder, how long will we last in the blazing presence of the holy God? Answer, about a second. And that's being a bit generous, isn't it? Without God's grace, we don't last. And here is where the grace of God shines brighter than that flame did that night. The angel Lord will not ask Samson to do what he himself will not do himself. Oh, dear ones, memorize this verse. Eat up this verse. Drink in this verse. Breathe it in. Cling to it. Don't you ever graduate from the essence of this verse? The Lord had meant to kill us. He wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. He wouldn't have shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. The angel of the Lord was not set on killing this couple, but he did intend to kill their sinfulness through this sacrifice as a type. If God had meant to kill Manoah and his wife, he would not have accepted their sacrifice. He wouldn't have shown them wonderful things to behold. So much life forthcoming for them. So much hope that they have in this verse. And if God had meant to kill us, dear ones, he wouldn't have sent us his only begotten son as a sacrifice. He wouldn't have shown us wonderful things that our hearts would behold. So much eternal life to have both now and forevermore. So much hope even now for the forevermore. We know that the Father loves us precisely because he sent us his only begotten Son as a sacrifice for us. This is the awesome sacrifice that our amazed souls just rest in for now and eternity. And what can our hearts taken captive by the crucified and risen Lord, do but proclaim that wonderful name. That was Manoah's heart. Tell us your name that we may honor it. The angel Lord didn't give Manoah his name at that time because the time was not yet. And that's because of the partial work of Samson. His was a ministry of beginnings. He would continue this ministry of beginnings that God really had begun centuries before. Remember verse 5 of the text. Samson will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Such an earthly and localized oppression that needed real rescue. But remember Matthew 1.23, the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph, he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. What Samson would begin to do for Israel in the face of Philistines, the son would begin and finish to do for all of his people in the face of their damnable deeds, in the face of that horrifying hell that is the fate of all who are outside of Christ. In the fullness of time, his wonderful name was given us by his grace. That name, Jesus, 
of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. It is this name that we, that we proclaim above all names. It is his excellencies that we announce always. And this one has graciously given us his name. And so we say proudly, yes, I am a Christian. Above all, I am his. Above all, he is his mine. He has made me his. He has accepted me. He has not killed me. Instead, he was killed for me. When the sun started, he finished. Praise be to the sun. So let us now come to this table of joy to watch, worship, rest, and proclaim his wonderful name. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a wonderful name you have. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his wonderful work of salvation, his life, death, resurrection, his session as well. Seated at the right hand of you, Father. We thank you for the Spirit who was given the Son without measure. We pray now that the Son through the Spirit would work in our lives that we might love you more faithfully, worship you, rest in you, proclaim your excellencies as you have called us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.